If you're in a state of systemic nutritional deficiencies, what you end up seeing is that you can move to a carnivorous diet. There might be some minor benefits, but actually someone still can't obtain the, the, the full benefits of the diet. And in that kind of situation, it can be the result of a chronic B1 deficiency. Hi everyone, welcome back to my channel. I have a very special interview with Elliot Overton and we're talking about a completely underrated and overlooked vitamin that may lead to chronic health conditions if there is a deficiency. And we're also gonna talk about why the carnivore diet might not be best for everybody. So for those that don't know you, can you explain a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, of course, I am a nutritionist who was previously based in the UK. I now live in France. I have a particular kind of interest in the clinical application of, of animal-based diets. Uh, so that's a, a diet which is primarily uh, based on deriving most of your calories from, from animal foods uh, or a more ancestral kind of approach. Um, and I also like to focus on the, the negative effects of consuming too many plant foods in the different forms primarily oxalate. That's one of my primary interests. Uh, and also uh, looking at, at kind of like the orthomolecular approach to, to addressing health conditions. So that can be uh, using uh, nutritional molecules uh, in supplemental form to try to enhance certain processes uh, and address biochemical kind of imbalances. Okay. And I noticed that you do have a particular interest in a vitamin, vitamin B1 or thiamine. And particularly when we have a deficiency in vitamin B1, that can cause a lot of health problems, which I think a lot of people don't know about. What is vitamin B1, thiamine, and why is it important for energy production and our health? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you're right. I do have a kind of somewhat of a narrow focus on vitamin B1. And there's a couple of Reasons for that, just so that your audience understand, vitamin B1 is also called thiamine. That's the name for it. Uh, it's a B vitamin, like all other B vitamins, it's found in most foods and it is involved in a variety of uh, kind of processes. It's involved in the way that we're processing uh, the larger macromolecules found in food. So it's, it's one of the micronutrients and it allows us to process carbohydrates, proteins, and fats in a very kind of simplified way of looking at it. Uh, the reason why I kind of am hyper-focused on this nutrient is I think because one, it doesn't really get that much attention, relatively speaking, uh, when you compare it to the other B vitamins. So for instance, in the, in the field of nutritional medicine or orthomolecular medicine or alternative medicine, functional medicine, this whole kind of branch of, of naturopathy or whatever uh, you'll, if, if you do any research into uh, say methylation or, or B vitamins for health, you'll see that there's uh, a lot of focus on folate or vitamin B12, for instance, there's I was going to say vitamin B12 comes to mind as something I always hear about. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It gets, yeah, it gets why, a lot of attention. Why do we always hear about vitamin B12? I mean, I think because it's, 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 a, I mean, all of the B vitamins are pretty miraculous in terms of how helpful they can be. And, and this is especially when they're used in high doses for different conditions. I mean, if you look at high doses, massive amounts of doses uh, of B12 for conditions like multiple sclerosis, 
or other neurological conditions which are considered to be incurable. In fact, they respond really well to uh, very high doses of, of, of the bees. And so there's been a lot of attention given to uh, niacin, for instance, for cardiovascular problems. Uh, there's lots of doctors who've, who've become focused on using these vitamins in, in like an orthomolecular fashion. So meaning in, in doses that you would never find in food. And they do hold a very specific medicinal value. The same also applies to the fat-soluble vitamins as well. For instance, vitamin D. You know, there's been uh, that many books and scientific papers looking at the medicinal value of high doses of vitamin D. And so this kind of comes back to one, you know, one of the main reasons why I'm interested in B1 is because B1 or thiamine is really something that you don't hear anything about. Okay. Now I, when I trained in nutrition school, I learned obviously the basic biochemistry. So, so what it's involved in, in the human body. Uh, but other than that, there was no information with regard to using it in the same way that you would use high dose B, high dose B12 in the same way that you would use high dose of vitamin D, uh, there was no information on that, that that I learned personally. And I happened to stumble upon a book published by uh, Dr. Chandler Mars and, and Dr. Derek Lonsdale, which was specifically about this topic. And it turns out that this Dr. De Derek Lonsdale, he was a pediatrician at the Cleveland Clinic uh, for decades. And he really pioneered the use of thiamine in very high doses sometimes thousands of, of times the uh the amount that you would you would ever get from food uh to treat some pretty complex conditions mm. and it, this was almost like a breath of fresh air and so i i did a, a lot more research into it and i started using it clinically i said i'm a nutritionist so people generally come to me uh, to to try to improve the health condition, whatever that might be, through using food and natural substances. So I started using this clinically, and what I what I witnessed was was actually fairly miraculous. Like I have seen conditions which have responded to nothing else respond to vitamin B1. And after I started witnessing this again and again and again, I kind of got this sensation that this is something that's really important but that no one knows about or very few people even discuss. And because of that, I kind of made it my mission to learn as much about it. Uh, I'm currently writing a book on it, but yeah. also um, to, to try to spread the word. And, and fortunately, the, 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 the feedback I've gotten is, is also uh, frankly amazing. You know, people getting in contact very frequently uh, and, and saying, wow, you know, I, I tried this and I tried that and I tried this. And, and actually it was only vitamin B1 in really high doses, which, which, which resolved my health problem. Yeah. So uh, the basics, I mean, what, what is vitamin B1? It's a vitamin. Uh, it's most known for, for being involved in the processing of carbohydrates. So basically how we take uh, carbohydrate, dietary carbohydrate uh, in the form of glucose and basically convert that into usable energy. It's involved at basically uh, just so that your listeners understand to make energy from food. What you require is you need to break down the constituent molecules into much smaller parts. And what that means is, is that you're running them through different enzymes or proteins, which cleave apart these, these molecules um, to get the very raw building blocks. Uh, those building blocks are then funneled through 
several other processes in a part of the cell called the mitochondria, which is how we're making ATP. ATP is essentially synonymous with cellular energy. And we need cellular energy for everything. We need cellular energy um, to protect against practically every type of disease. I mean, there's a lot of uh, good information which would suggest a lot of the science which would suggest that many of the chronic diseases in our modern world stem from this issue of, of a lack of cellular energy relating mm -hmm. to this mitochondrial uh, dysfunction. dysfunction. And so, yeah, indeed, indeed. And, and this can be autoimmunity, this can be kind of chronic inflammation, this can be any kind of disease. You just look at mitochondrial function, it seems to be at the root of many of these things. And so making energy is, is really important. And the way in which we're doing that, as I said, you're running it through these cycles. Now, several enzymes in these cycles require nutrients in the form of micronutrients, the B vitamins and minerals as well. And it turns out that thiamine is, is pretty central in, uh, in, as I said, it's most known for its role in carbohydrate metabolism. What this basically means is that uh, it turns out that the amount of carbohydrate that you consume needs to be proportional to the amount of thiamine that you're taking in. And for this reason, what it means is, is that if someone is consuming a high amount of carbohydrate, generally, they also need to be getting enough thiamine to process that. Okay. Pretty simple concept. However, I ask a question. What if on a yeah. carnivore diet, you have zero carbohydrates? Is there a need for vitamin B1 then? Like, or or a, can you be deficient? Because a lot of my audience, and I am also uh, following a carnivore lifestyle. So my, my uh, carbohydrates is zero, essentially. So if we're not consuming carbohydrates, how does that relate to vitamin B1? And can we have a deficiency in vitamin B1? Yeah. Okay. So, so the main kind of association with what for thiamine, what it does in the body is, is, is related to carbohydrate metabolism, but that's only really a small part of the story. In fact, thiamine is, is needed to break down or to process branch chain amino acids. So okay. the ones that you're getting from, from meat in, in a very high amount, actually, uh, leucine, isoleucine, and valine, um, these are, these are found in, in muscle meat in, in a high amount. Um, you need thiamine as, as part of the breakdown process of these. And in fact, one of the uh, conditions, a genetic condition of, of, <clears throat> of a, a problem with uh, breaking down these, uh, these amino acids is called maple syrup urine disease. Uh, what that maple basically... Maple syrup urine disease? <laughs> yeah, yeah, MSUD. Yeah, no, oh the, the reason it's called that, yeah, but the reason it's called that is because someone might urinate and um, and and it, it oftentimes it's brown in color and it smells like maple syrup. Okay, right. this can be present in in some diabetics, right? But actually, um, this is oftentimes a genetic condition uh, caused by a defect in the enzyme, which is thiamine dependent, which breaks down these amino acids. And so, what ends up happening is you start peeing out or urinating uh, intermediate breakdown products or chemicals, uh, which you shouldn't be. Uh, excreting in high amounts. And that's what gives it this characteristic odor and appearance. Now, the interesting thing is, is that if in, in some of these uh, kind of variants of this genetic condition, the way that they treat it is actually by giving very high doses of thiamine. Because what the high doses of thiamine do is, uh, is they stimulate the enzyme, which isn't working very well. You know, if, if someone has this genetic condition, the enzyme only works maybe 20%. 
by giving massive doses, massive doses of thiamine, they can they can increase the the level of that enzyme to eighty or one hundred percent, and therefore they start breaking down these proteins properly. So so thiamine is really important for for protein metabolism for one thing, but it's also needed for the breakdown of fats for energy as well. Like mm-hmm. one of the stages is what is specifically related to carbohydrate metabolism, but another one of the enzymes which uses thiamine is also like involved in how we're taking fats, we're breaking those down, and we're using those for usable energy as well. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's also very important for the neurological system. In fact, it's essential. Like all other B vitamins, they're called essential because we need them. We need to constantly intake them from the from the environment. We can't synthesize them ourselves. So that's However, what I was going to ask around um, uh, vitamin B1 relating to brain health, relating to, for example, dementia, Alzheimer's. So, for example, my dad has frontal temporal dementia. Although you can't reverse it with vitamin B1, I'm assuming, can vitamin B1 help with Alzheimer's dementia or, or okay. neurological disease? I know it's a big question. <laughs> Right, you're you're skipping ahead. You're skipping ahead. Sorry, okay. Let's um, no, no, no. Here. But I no, was it's an excellent question. I was we'll particularly get that. interested about that because I was thinking about my my dad and I and I read about B one relating to brain health. And I was like, oh, oh. You're perfectly accurate. Thank we you. will get there. Okay. Okay. Uh, I mean, to understand how we get to that point, I mean, we also have to look at, at what thiamine actually does. So. It's, it's necessary for basically every single cell um, to, to generate energy. And, and again, primarily associated with carbohydrates, but also for every other macronutrient as well. So protein and fat. Now, what's interesting is that the animal studies show that if you go onto a very low carbohydrate diet, you can have a thiamine sparing effect. What that means is, is that uh, there was one study on pigeons, which showed that when they were on a low carbohydrate, but higher fat approach, the effects of deficiency were um, basically um, ameliorated. But when they were consuming carbohydrates, they developed a very strong deficiency and and associated symptoms. And so it does seem as though a ketogenic or a low carbohydrate approach is has has this kind of thiamine sparing effect. Okay, that's, that's, that's key. Um, And that's because you're basically bypassing that, that step to, 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 you know, you're not getting carbohydrates, so you're sparing some of what you already have. However, it's still essential for every, you know, for every human being, and you can't get in, you can't get by without enough of it. Uh, It has, like, if we look at, like, the main systems involved, like I said, I mean, every single cell, that means every single organ, and it affects different organs kind of differentially. Uh, If we look at the effects of a deficiency, well, that can tell us which of the organs are really going to be affected more than others. And it seems as though it's affecting primarily three main systems. Um, One of the most kind of prominent systems is going to be the brain. And this relates to what you're talking about with dementia. Um, But in, in the conventional medical community, they will associate thiamine deficiency with alcoholics, um, generally because alcohol has a depleting effect on thiamine. It can prevent the absorption of it and prevent the kind of utilization of that. And um, one of the, the, some of the main symptoms um, are classified under a kind of category, they're called Wernicke encephalopathy. That's like end stage thiamine deficiency. 
And that's basically when the the brain becomes inflamed and there's a major dysfunction in how the brain works. And someone can actually develop kind of paralysis. They can lose the ability to speak. They can lose the ability to see, lose the control of the eye muscles. Um, but it's also going to affect the peripheral nervous system as well. So one of the key signs and symptoms that you might see in an alcoholic is going to be a loss of control of the limbs, um, issues with lower limb motor coordination, burning sensations, neuropathy, um, difficulty kind of um, feeling. You can have loss of sensation. You can mm. have tremors, any kind of neurological issue. And the reason for this is, is, well, the nerves require a lot of energy, right? The brain requires a lot of, like a lot of energy. Uh, if you look at the the amount of energy that the brain actually needs uh, in relation to its weight, I mean, it's one of the most en- energy hungry organs in the entire body. So the brain needs a consistent supply of energy. And if we look at the effects of a deficiency, well, where is it primarily found? It's primarily found in the lower regions of the brain, the limbic system uh, and the brainstem, the cerebellum. Basically, these these are referred to as kind of the primitive areas of the brain. And the reason for that is, um, is is if you look at physiology, basically what those areas of the brain are responsible for is like primitive reflexes. What this means is, is control of the autonomic nervous system, the system in which our body basically maintains some degree of normality, some degree of balance or homeostasis, homeodynamism, if that's a, a way of describing it. The things that we don't have to think about doing. So give you an example, your heart rate, you know, you don't, you don't consciously control your heart rate, although you can, you can have some degree of influence through uh, your thinking patterns, through your breathing, breathing exercises that can have an indirect effect on your heart rate. Exercise is going to increase your heart rate, but you don't consciously control it. If you had to consciously control it, you wouldn't have energy to do anything else. You know, if you had to think about breathing, for instance, that's another thing. Breathing, heart rate, body temperature, blood circulation, digestion. So as a side know. question, does it control your set point weight? Uh, indirectly. Indirectly, so. right? So, so yeah, I mean, that's... Okay, yeah. That, that is part... No, but I mean, that is part of the autonomic nervous system, okay? Exactly. The endocrine. That's where my the, thought process was in terms of how it regulates actual body in terms of blinking, breathing, every sensory that we actually have. But, you know, having this idea about set point is also something that is controlled by our body and something that we can't control by just calorie deprivation, I'm just trying to say. So I was just putting it out there in terms of a thought or a, uh, something to think about. Right. Yeah. So, so there's, there's what, what's called like the neuroendocrine axis. Okay. So, so the, the autonomic nervous system being responsible for all of the things that your body does that you don't have to consciously control. Well, part of that is, is coming through neurological control. So that means basically parts of the brain have to basically integrate information, which is coming from your environment. So for instance, you touch a hot stove, right? Or, I should say parts of the brain, parts of your central nervous system. So the central nervous system is your brain spinal cord. Okay. Mm. Now you touch a hot stove. You don't have to 
think about the reflexive action of taking your hand away. Okay. That occurs via direct, that, that basically occurs via the spinal cord. And the way that is, is that you have uh, this interconnected network of uh, neurons, which are, which are responsible for detecting these, these changes. So, you know, you detect heat, you detect cold, you detect pain. Uh, and, and, and basically what, what this is, 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 this is your peripheral nervous apparatus, which is detecting information. And then that's being sent up either directly to the spinal cord or through the spinal cord up to, up to the brain. The brain is responsible for integrating that information. This is all something that you don't have to think about. Fortunately, it integrates all of that environmental information and then uh, exerts some kind of a change via messages coming down through the descending network and telling your body to change in some way. So an example would be if you, if you, uh, if you detect a change in temperature outside, for instance, it's much hotter than usual, then what you'll notice is your uh, blood vessels start to become dilated. Blood rushes to the surface to allow for your body to expel excess heat. The opposite is going to happen in the cold. And this is basically occurring through the autonomic nervous system. Now, part of that is going to be endocrine control. So part of that is going to be the effect of hormones. Those are released from glands and they're traveling through the blood essentially to work in conjunction with your nervous system to tell your different cells and organs basically what to do at different times. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like I said before, this, this is all kind of controlled by kind of very primitive regions of the brain, which are necessary to keep you alive. If you didn't have this system, you would die very quickly. Um, now, interestingly, those same areas of the brain, which are responsible for this stuff are particularly sensitive to a deprivation of thiamine. In fact, even a mild deficit can cause changes in the way that those brain, brain regions work, okay? The brain regions, they have a very high requirement for energy, therefore a consistent turnover of oxygen, consistent turnover of ATP, and therefore, because thiamine is so central to energy metabolism, this is one of the ways in which those brain regions are affected because there's that energy deficit. On the other hand, we also have this kind of very central role that thiamine is playing in the communication between different neurons in the brain and throughout the rest of the body. So for instance, for nerve signals to be able to, to, to travel, you have this, uh, fatty, um, this, this fatty kind of covering on, on the layer of certain neurons, and this helps to uh, conduct information. Now, this is called myelin sheath. Now, um, basically, the uh, production of myelin sheath is, uh, is, 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 um, is, is required or, or requires vitamin B1. The conduction of, 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 of signals between different neurons or the release of neurotransmitters from neuron to, to, uh, to basically communicate information to other neurons also requires vitamin B1. Um, vitamin B1 is, is really important for the way that neurons function. They fire and they receive information. Uh, it's, it, there's, there's one particular neurotransmitter, which is very interesting. It's called acetylcholine. Now, acetylcholine, uh, the, one of the signs of one of the effects of vitamin B1 deficiency is that we can no longer generate or use acetylcholine very well. Now, 
why is this also important? Well, if we look at the way that the nervous system is controlling the rest of the body, I don't know, do you think your, your listeners would be familiar with the concept of sympathetic and parasympathetic? I think so, but maybe explain it just for those that don't know the difference. Okay, so in very simple terms, the autonomic nervous system, this non-conscious kind of control of the rest of the body really exists in two main branches. One is the sympathetic nervous system. This is generally associated with the fight or flight response, although that's like taken to the extreme. Okay. The sympathetic nervous system is, it's basically one of the ways in which we are um, responding to environmental stresses. On the other hand, we have the parasympathetic, which has an opposing action. So they're antagonistic to one another. Sympathetic opposes parasympathetic and likewise the other way around. Now, parasympathetic is otherwise referred to as rest and digest. In fact, it's meant to be predominant, uh, the majority of the time. In fact, it's, it's the system which is responsible for controlling or dampening inflammation, um, controlling digestion. So it has a pro uh, digestive effect. On the other hand, the sympathetic nervous system uh, diverts blood away from the digestive system towards the muscles. An example would be if you feel uh, suddenly as though you're under threat, this can be for whatever reason. Um, it can be a genuinely threatening, threatening uh, cir- circumstance. For instance, if you're robbed on the street or you know you get into a fight, what you'll notice is that your heart starts pumping faster. You get mm-hmm. elevated heart heart rate. Um, you you feel kind of a nervous, kind of tension. You feel like you've got loads of energy. Your I'm blood sweating. is <laughs> palm sweating. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. You're hyper alert. That's the sympathetic nervous system. And that is really designed to mobilize energy reserves to get you out of a a dangerous situation. You notice that actually the blood is diverted away from the internal organs and towards the muscles so that your muscles can function at a higher rate to get you out of this dangerous situation. On the other hand, the parasympathetic nervous system is really meant to be the normal the normal kind of uh, system that we we operate from when we are relaxed. It's associated with a state of relaxation. It is associated with a lower kind of slower breathing rate, slower heart rate. And actually, it's going to be responsible for regeneration of tissue. It's going to be responsible for maintaining the organism when it's not under a system of um, of danger. And ordinarily, humans should not be in a dangerous situation 24-7. We should yeah. be in this parasympathetic mode for the majority of the time. So ultimately, you, you have to have a balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic. And actually, um, this is controlled by, by really by the brain and by the autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. So why is thiamine relevant to this? Well, the main um, neurotransmitter or chemical that your body uses to maintain sympath- uh, parasympathetic tone, what this means is to maintain the action of the parasympathetic nervous system, exerting this rest and digest function on all of the rest of the body, really is what is referred to as cholinergic. This means it uses acetylcholine. Therefore, acetylcholine or having enough acetylcholine is basically synonymous or means the same thing as being able to activate and, and, and remain in parasympathetic mode, which is what we should all really all be trying to do. 
okay all the time that we we should be in that parasympathetic mode the calm the resting oh, no mode. that's Most no time. to say all of the time that's an oversimplification and again yeah. I, i'm i'm oversimplifying this just so the, uh, your listeners understand Could understand that, it absolutely there's always going to be a balance right there's yeah. always going to be a balance but one is going to kind of predominate okay? okay and ideally we should predominantly uh, be or let's say a state of health would be someone who could who could shift between sympathetic and parasympathetic at um uh, at will basically so their body can determine when there is not an external threat and therefore they should be able to activate or stay in this kind of parasympathetic mode so that they can start repairing the tissue so that they can build things so that they can kind of do all the things that you should ordinarily be doing when you're not running away from a tiger okay in so, our modern world so just a question in terms of yeah so in our modern world usually people are elevated sympathetic nervous system they're not really in a would you agree with that that is yeah uh, that that is one of the factors underlying chronic disease okay is hypersympathetic yes because in sympathetic mode a way to think about it is catabolic okay catabolic is designed to mobilize energy reserves okay that means it has a catabolic effect on muscles it has a catabolic effect on connective tissue if you look at one of the hormones which is involved in the sympathetic nervous system where we have adrenaline and we also have cortisol you look at cortisol well cortisol is beneficial in the short term okay it's it's necessary for us to survive and it follows a circadian rhythm however cortisol chronically has a major catabolic effect on organ tissue on the gut so one of the preferential tissues in which the cortisol is basically going to break down is the gut lining the gut lining contains high amounts of an amino acid glutamine. Glutamine can be, can be converted into glucose or can basically be used via gluconeogenesis to provide energy. Glucose is a fast acting form of energy. And so this is one of the, the, the basically sympathetic is it means the stress response. Okay. Exactly. You're in, if you're in chronic stress, when someone's under chronic stress, this has been implicated in basically every, every known disease. Okay. And part of this, um, at least in some cases is because someone's nervous system, uh, in, in some cases, at least it's, it's when the nervous system cannot uh, properly determine or cannot shift between sympathetic and parasympathetic in the way that it should be able to do. Now, in relation to thiamine, why is this important? Well, I said that the parasympathetic nervous system, this regenerative system, is using acetylcholine, and one of the primary effects of a thiamine deficiency is low acetylcholine, okay? And the, 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 one of the main, or the primary parasympathetic nerve, let's say, runs from like the base of the skull down and it's innovating many of most organs but it's innovating the digestive organs for instance it has this inhibitory effect on the heart it slows down the heart and it basically has um, an anti-inflammatory effect as well well again it's using acetylcholine and thiamine uh, is associated with enhancing cholinergic turn in the vagus uh, cholinergic tone in the vagus nerve likewise 
low amounts of thiamine reduce the amount in which or reduce the ability of the vagus nerve to exert these anti-inflammatory effects these kind of modulating effects on the rest of the body and in fact what they what they found is that uh, you know if you induce thiamine deficiency in a in animals then essentially uh, these animals, the vagus nerve stops working as it should do. And so you end up with a situation where someone can be stuck in sympathetic mode and they can't activate this parasympathetic system. Part of the reason is because of the effects, you can't make enough acetylcholine, you can't release acetylcholine at the, at the, at the junction between different neurons. And at the same time, you have this issue of uh, the the lower regions of the brain, they, they they don't have sufficient energy. They don't have the the capacity to basically determine how you're responding to environmental stresses. Mm. So, long story short, if we look at what thiamine deficiency does to an organism, it basically reduces their ability to adapt to environmental stresses. And okay. how does this present? Well, like I said, it's so gonna... signs and symptoms. Signs and symptoms. It what can be. What should look for? Because you, you're you're talking about the uh, lack of B1 and all the chronic conditions that somebody can experience. But I don't want people to go out there and just take loads of B1, <laughs> or even buy your your supplement just to to take the B1. Or maybe they should. I'm not too sure. But what would they be experiencing? Okay, so if we look at how this generally presents, uh, it is uh, like I mentioned end stage deficiency what they originally found in japan and china and etc um was individuals would present in some cases with primarily brain-based disorders other cases it would be peripheral neurological problems and this is partly due to what we spoke about uh, how the autonomic nervous system is 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 disrupted and so this can be any issue which is characterized by your, your body's inability to maintain homeostasis. So this might be something as benign as circulation problems. This might be something benign as chronically sweaty palms, chronically sweaty feet, uh, anything which relates to a dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. The primary or the kind of characteristic syndrome that this is going to cause is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. This is something when someone stands up, all of a sudden they get rapid heart rate. OK, and there's lots of other issues that can kind of that, that that can look like, but also it can be something like peripheral neuropathy. So burning in the hands, burning in the in the feet, um, a loss of sensation. Or, but or if tingling, we're like in the hands and feet, tingling. Yeah. yeah. And anything relating to the neurological system, thiamine can basically can, can, can be related to, okay, because thiamine is so important for nerve function. But then we move further aside, we see that um, the, there, there's a strong connection with the heart. Now, we know that the nervous system is connected to the heart. So some of the changes in the heart can be due to this kind of role of the nervous system or a dysfunction in the nervous system affecting how the heart functions. This can be someone with a resting heart rate, which is high, or it can be someone who has arrhythmia. So for instance, someone who uh, noticed flutters or they've been diagnosed with uh, some other kind of heart condition. Uh, in some cases, it can be poor uh, cardiac output. So for this reason, someone might get lower leg edema. They might have um, issues with kind of breathlessness. They might get angina. Uh, that's another way in which a deficiency classically presented. 
But furthermore, and I find that this is probably a lot more common, uh, the researchers uh, also characterized a syndrome which relates to the gut. And actually what some have found is that this can be sometimes the first sign of deficiency. This is probably due to the effect or due to the fact that like we were talking about, if your listeners go back to the parasympathetic nervous system, well, this is innovating the digestive system and your gut, all of the organs in your gut are surrounded. They're embedded within this very dense network of neurons. This is otherwise called the second brain or the enteric nervous system. And in fact, um, the amount of information this is detecting uh, the majority of it, there's, there's a connection between the brain and the gut, basically. And most of the information is actually coming, it's being derived from the gut going to the brain rather than the other way around. But the brain is very important for controlling every system or every function of the digestive system. And in fact, I'm not sure like what the, the common kind of complaints of your clients are, but for me, I have seen many people with chronic gut issues, okay? And in fact, this is kind of uh, a very common thing these days. And what the, the way that this is typically kind of treated in alternative medicine is to focus on, say, the gut bacteria, look at gut infections, look at yeah. parasites. You know, you might have someone who has poor stomach acid production. You know, they, they benefit from taking hydrochloric acid supplements or apple cider vinegar. Mm. Many people are reliant on digestive enzyme supplements or bile acid supplements, particularly people in the carnivore community. You know, they have problems digesting fats. So they take ox bile, they take pancreatic enzymes. And sometimes that, that helps, you know, it works. But if people become reliant on this, then it kind of indicates that actually for some reason, the digestive organs which are responsible for making those substances are not putting out enough of the things in the first place. And there's a reason for that. And that's that's what particularly interests me. So the way that I was trained in functional medicine, I've done a couple of the training programs in, in functional kind of alternative medicine. And the way that, you know, you're taught to treat gut problems is by looking at the gut. So it's looking at these, these things that originate in the gut, but actually, so, so in that case, it's a bottom up approach, right? But what I'm most interested in is for the people who try these, try these things and actually don't see improvements or they see mild improvements, they become reliant on these supplements. For me, what I like to look at is a top down approach and say, okay, brain to the digestive. Ah, interesting. From the brain to the gut. And in fact, more often than not, I find the issue is with a lack of communication between the brain and the gut. And that's the reason for the chronic gut issues. So if we look at kind of how this might present in someone looking at the symptoms, well, to understand these, we have to basically look at, you know, what the gut is designed to do. So for instance, the stomach is meant to make stomach acid. It's also meant to propel or churn food around for you to then get it into the small intestine. So an example of a dysfunctional stomach might be poor stomach acid output. Another thing might be poor churning activity. So the two things which control stomach acid output or the main things which are involved in stomach acid output from the parietal cells and the churning is actually the vagus nerve. 
Okay. The vagus nerve, like I said, is communicating information from those lower regions of the brain down through the vagus nerve, innovating the enteric nervous system of the stomach. And it's telling the stomach, it's telling the cells to release stomach acid. It's also telling the cells to start propelling or churning around food. Okay. If you cut out an animal's vagus nerve, that's going to affect how the stomach functions. Now, in some cases, the enteric nervous system can act independently of the central nervous system. That's very interesting. But for the most part, the, 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 the parasympathetic nervous system uh, has, a, has a modulating effect, and it basically tells the digestive organs what to do and when to do it. Okay. So if someone, the way that this might present in terms of symptoms, sorry if I'm going off too long, that's okay. But how these mechanisms actually present in symptoms is someone might have chronic acid reflux. They might have upper bloating. So for instance, if they eat a lot of protein, this is what I often see on carnivore diets. People mm -hmm. actually can't consume that much protein because if they do, then they feel as though there's a rock sitting in their stomach. Right? What about they constipation from carnivore diet? Is that something as well that can be a side effect? Okay. So look, from you're jumping ahead again. <laughs> No, I we're going to get there. Like, Don't worry. Like when you're talking, I'm thinking of all these questions that, that I want to ask, but okay, I'm jumping ahead. Okay, keep going. No, that's fine. That's fine. It's just a lower part of the digestive system. So in the okay. stomach, it can be acid reflux or chronic belching. You know, someone yep. who gets lots of burping after eating too much protein um, or, or whatever. And, and, and sometimes it's gastroparesis. So in some cases, someone feels as though there's a rock sitting in their stomach for a yeah. very long time. Yeah. Well, the stomach is ordinarily meant to get that food out and into the small intestine. So again, if someone has vagus nerve problems, then the stomach is not going to work as it should do. Likewise, in the small intestine, some really common symptoms that people might present with, and this isn't just on a carnivore diet, but these are like chronic gut issues that many people have. Mm. One is that um, they might have uh, bloating after consuming certain foods. And that is often because there is uh, excess gas, which is metabolized or produced by gut bacteria. Sometimes you can have a condition which is called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Okay. Uh, one of SIBO. Yeah. It's very common. Even on carnival, some people start developing SIBO symptoms from excess protein. And that's because there are protein um, metabolizing bacteria, which can produce sulfur gases like hydrogen sulfide. Um, and, and, and this is, this is a real thing. And one of the main reasons for this is because if someone doesn't have enough stomach acid, well, stomach acid exerts an antimicrobial effect. So if someone's not producing enough stomach acid, they don't get the right, uh, they, they can't kill off bacteria. So you end up ah, precisely okay, got it. Got it. Does B1 it help? So, so supplementing with hydros B1, is that going to help with all those side effects and all those problems? Right. Okay. In, in, in the small intestine, right, if it, not only do you need kind of an antimicrobial effect from the stomach, but what you also need is you need the signals to be able to propel food through, through the intestine. So like you said, constipation, uh, any motility disorder, anything which involves poor clearance of the small intestine or the large intestine. And this can be when people have chronic constipation or gut spasms, or they get bloating, or they feel full, or they get nauseous. Again, this could relate to the vagus nerve and poor intestinal communication or nervous system control because the nervous system, which is responsible for telling those cells to propel food. And this is one of the things that is actually involved in SIBO. So if we look at the effect of B1, like you just asked, well, 
if someone has this problem with their nervous system, then ultimately um, one of the things that can be the problem is that they don't have enough B1 because they can't get the messages from the vagus nerve to the gut. And therefore the gut stops functioning, it starts functioning like independently and it, it doesn't work very well. Okay. So one of the things that B1 can help with is increasing the uh, amount of acetylcholine that's working. It's acting on the brain. So it's improving energy metabolism in those regions, which are responsible for, for kind of controlling the entire nervous system. But at the same time, it's acting directly on the vagus nerve. And it's also acting on the enteric neurons to make the right kind of chemicals that they need to, to digest food, basically. So again, chronic digestive issues as an extension of the autonomic nervous system, these can be common signs of a B1 deficiency. Now, and something that I would also add is that, again, since every cell needs B1 to make energy, any condition which relates to fatigue is automatically going to be implicated in a B1 or thiamine is, is likely going to be implicated anyway. And the reason for this primarily is, is because if you can't convert food into energy, then you don't feel as though you've got energy. It's quite as simple as that. And since B1 is, in fact, B1 is, is one of the most important B vitamins in that respect, because at certain points where it sits, it actually sits at these, these places called rate limiting enzymes. What that means is, is you can have enough of all of the other nutrients but if you don't have enough B1, then the step of energy metabolism or the rate at which it works slows right down. And what that means is, is you effectively can't make as much ATP. One other thing that I would add, I mean, this applies to chronic fatigue syndrome. This applies to fibromyalgia. The interesting connection is that, like I spoke about the vagus nerve, well, not only is the vagus nerve responsible for telling the organs kind of to calm down or to get into this rest and repair mode, digest properly. But it's also, there is a pathway called the anti-inflammatory cholinergic pathway. This is actually one of the body's main protections or main protective agents against environmental triggers of inflammation. I'll give you an example. If you consume something which is toxic, mm -hmm. some kind of, I don't know, pesticide, some kind of uh, plant chemical, whatever, when it is entering into the gut, you can have uh, like a, an, an acute kind of inflammatory response. And that can, if, if you have issues which get into like, a, for instance, uh, plant chemicals, plant toxins, proteins, et cetera, which make their way through the gut barrier, environmental toxins, which do this, they can lead to a systemic inflammatory response. Now, the thing in which your body is using to counteract that systemic inflammatory response is the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve basically says, okay, this is a problem. But ultimately, we're not going to have an excessive reaction against this. What we're going to do is we're going to have a minor inflammatory response, but actually we're going to put the dampeners on inflammation. However, in chronic inflammatory conditions, there seems to be a lot of research which would ind indicate that actually vagus nerve, there's a problem with the vagus nerve in that the vagus nerve loses its ability to dampen inflammation. And this is actually one of the ways in which uh, deep breathing exercises is associated with more positive outcomes in basically every single type of disease you can think of. Another example is vagus nerve stimulation. There's artificial vagus nerve stimulators, which have been used for rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel diseases, any other kind of chronic pain condition. And again, this is because 
the vagus nerve not only puts the dampeners on inflammation, but what it also does is is it has like an indirect effect on whether the body experiences pain. Mm. And this automatically kind of means that if someone is low in B1, what they not only do they lose kind of control of the rest of the body, but what also happens or can happen is that they start developing chronic inflammatory reactions to things that they ordinarily didn't. And this is one of the mechanisms by which people can develop food intolerances. In fact, the vagus nerve is essentially a switch for whether the gut is leaky or not. In many cases of leaky gut, you know, like if you look at leaky gut, intestinal permeability, which your listeners are probably familiar with, um, ultimately, like, the foods are to blame, right? The food proteins, like don't consume gluten, don't, don't consume dairy, don't consume lectins. And it's like, that's partly true. But why is it that not everyone who consumes these food has leaky gut? You know, it's like the yeah, foods can true. trigger it in some people, but they can't trigger it in other people. And yeah. I find that very interesting. And one of the reasons I think can be related to the fact that, um, Ultimately, you know, if someone has a well-working nervous system and a well-working well vagus nerve, well, the vagus nerve can say, okay, the gut actually needs to be uh, kind of semi-permeable to certain things, but actually we don't want it to be hyper-permeable. So it controls the gut permeability. Now you can take as many number of supplements under the sun, you know, you can take L-glutamine, sodium butyrate, you know, marshmallow root, all of these things which are involved in sealing up the leaky gut. But ultimately, it's damage control and it's kind of not looking at the the root cause, which in some cases is faulty top down control from the brain to the gut. So 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 in in terms of supplementation of B1, do we have to use an external supplement or can we just use or can we just get B1 from foods in the appropriate doses? Okay. I mean, that's, that's a good question. It depends on the context. Okay. Because ordinarily I think in a natural environment, uh, you know, as in hunter gatherers, you know, we would kind of, uh, anything that is contained in foods, uh, is going to be sufficient as long as we're eating enough of them, it's going to be sufficient, um, for the human being to kind of sustain optimal function of their body. Okay. What I would say is, is that we don't live in a normal environment, right? We live in in quite a hostile environment, and and this is because it's a very there's stressful many environment. <laughs> Precisely, right? Precisely, especially th- Just, these last like few years. Yes. No, it's true, right? It's true. This we live in, a, in an environment which is characterized by high stress, um, but also environmental toxicity. Uh, non-physical toxicity, as in uh, electromagnetic radiation. Uh, we have uh food you know pesticides exhaust fumes we have uh all kinds of different things which are basically perceived as stresses by the human body okay now one thing that i would say is that if you look at the amount of vitamins or minerals that contain within food it's really quite low okay it's really 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 quite low and even if you have a food like beef liver for instance or egg yolk it's still like relatively speaking going to be low in in you might be getting you know one to two to three milligrams in a a day's diet of something like thiamine okay b vitamin now how much should we be having though of b1 well again like average uh, person like no chronic conditions average person just wanting to maintain health and optimal energy how much 
milligrams of well, a, B, a, a B1. Okay, so the RDA is going to be between one and 1.5 milligrams per day. Okay, that's the RDA. That, that's recommended dietary allowance. Now, there's also some kind of controversy around that because if you have below that, then you can develop de deficiency. Does it mean that you need that? You know, do you need more for optimal health? How much is actually generated by the gut bacteria? I think it's significant. But either way, you know, 1.5 milligrams in the experiments at least was enough to prevent against genuine deficiency. That said, like that said, if we look at the amount that is used in clinical studies to achieve some kind of a benefit, it turns out to be at least 100 times the amount that you would get through food. And in some cases, it can be thousands of times the amount that you would get through food. So like I said, if you're an, a hunter-gatherer and you're living in a natural environment with low kind of environmental stress or low man-made toxicity, then the, the, the amount that you get would, would be sufficient for that purpose. However, we thought it was a very good idea, you know, as a species um, to start refining our foods, you know, and, and this, this, this has been a major problem. So what we'll do is we'll take a, a grain like rice and to make it more palatable or for whatever reason, make it store for longer periods of time, what ends up happening, what, what they decided to do was start milling the rice. So they take out the outer like bran of the rice, which is the, the brown, the difference between brown rice and white rice and, um, and consume the, the white portion of that. Now, the main way in which they discovered thiamine deficiency to start off with was after the Japanese started doing this, you'd have the higher classes, which would start milling the rice and take off the, the the brown section. And actually, those who consume lots of white rice, which is high in starch, high in glucose, um, they would start developing signs of very severe deficiency, you know, neurological, cardiovascular gut type of conditions. Some of them would die. And so what they actually found out was that the 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 nutritional content was contained within the outer portion of the the, the rice, which you know, the brown portion, which they would remove. And so like when you process a food, it's important to know that either you destroy or you actually remove the beneficial component of that. You know, uh, the out the the um, the non-processed section would would contain the B vitamins which are needed to metabolize the starch contained within the grain. But ultimately, when you remove that, it means that you're getting a lot of the starch or you're getting a lot of the fat. It's, it applies to you know um, uh, dietary fats. We refine foods, we uh, isolate the dietary fats, we consume high amounts uh, in isolated form. We, we uh, you know, if you, if you, if you process uh, proteins, for instance, you destroy many of the beneficial compounds in those. And so what we end up with is this concept, which was referred by Dr. Kind of coined by Dr. Daryl Lonsdell as high calorie malnutrition. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what that basically means is you get lots of the macronutrients, which is the protein, carbs, and fats but you end up with much lower levels of the micronutrients which are needed to process those macronutrients. So over the long term, what this does is it reduces your amount of micronutrients stored in the body because you're so busy processing all of this stuff. And this is one of the ways in which processed or refined foods can induce nutritional deficiencies. Really important key, key point to understand. Now, like I said towards the start of this talk, 
thiamine is most associated with glucose metabolism because the amount of B1 that you need to take in is proportional to the amount of carbohydrate that you eat to some extent. It's a simplified way of looking at it. So what do we do in the Western world? You know, most people consume massive amounts of refined carbohydrate. We consume massive amounts of sugar. And yet the amount of thiamine, although they try to replace some of it, they don't do that in all of it. So they fortify food with a very small amount. But for instance, there's lots of foods that... There's lots of foods that aren't fortified, okay? So actually what we do is we consume high amounts of alcohol, we consume high amounts of glucose, high amounts of refined carbohydrates and fats and proteins and processed foodstuffs. And yet, so what we're doing is we're kind of filling up our tank with that stuff, but we're not matching it with the amount of micronutrients, particularly thiamine. And so here's the thing, is that thiamine is probably, I think, the most underrated B vitamin is because, primarily because, and it could be different in another reality, you know, another time if we didn't process our food, but because of our reliance on processed foods, this has a particularly detrimental effect on our amount of thiamine, and we don't take in extra to account for that balance. So what happens over the long term is that as we become depleted in the stores of thiamine, you know, this can be from childhood, it can last for decades, we develop symptoms or the body adapts in certain ways. So it might downregulate the process of energy production simply to account for the fact that it's low in B1. And therefore, what you would end up with a situation with is some kind of a chronic disease which is characterized by fatigue or characterized by brain fog or some kind of poor, you know, poor functioning of some, some of the organs uh, can be a neurological problem. It can be something as, you know, common as insomnia or excessive sleepiness or lethargy or muscle pain or muscle weakness. And this can be primarily caused by what's called a subclinical deficiency of B1. And the interesting thing is, is you can go on for, as I said, decades without developing full-blown deficiency symptoms. It's like you remain on the edge. You know, you're skirting the edge of this for a very long time. So the body is quite intelligent in how it can adapt to low environmental supply of these micronutrients. Here's the thing, though, is that if you have someone who's who's sustained themselves on a Western diet for a long period of time, those adaptations by the body seem to remain for quite a while. Now, what Dr. Daryl Lonsdale, Lonsdale found was just giving small amounts, and the Japanese also, also studied this heavily, but they found that giving small amounts in the diet, if someone has these subclinical deficiency sim- symptoms, giving the amount that you find in food is not enough to bring the body out of this adaptive state. In fact, the body will remain no matter what. So the the only way to do this was to kind of shock it or to um, to provide it with very high amounts. Like, like I said before, the issue with a B1 deficiency is that it can cause a condition which is called malnutrition-induced malnutrition. Wow. The reason for that is, is because, I mean, think about it. Like if B1 is so essential to how the gut is working, if your gut doesn't work, that means that you can't absorb the dietary nutrients yeah. which are present in the food that you're eating. It doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter what food you're eating. You could be eating the most nut- nutritionally dense food. If your pancreas can't make enzymes, if your liver can't make um, a bile, if you've got leaky gut and you can't absorb m- nutrients because you've got gut inflammation, you're basically just flushing them down the toilet. Yeah. 
Okay. So we do have so to this... get to the root of the problem. It's not just that some diet or some something is going to work. You do have to do some. So is there like some tests or anything that people can actually find if they have a deficiency in B1? Because how would we know? So, okay. Like the first part of your question, does a diet resolve the problem? And like this comes back to what I was originally saying, like, people come to me because they, they, they have, they, they look at the carnival diet and, you know, you, you mostly hear about the success stories, right? You hear about people doing a diet and it is without doubt, probably the most nutritional, nutritionally dense diet that you can find if you're consuming organ meats and whatnot. However, uh, the, the issue becomes that there's many people who do this diet and they don't, they don't get the benefits that other people might get. They might see some improvements like a less inflammation, but they don't see improvements in their digestion or they still feel chronically fatigued or they've still got brain fog and neuroinflammation type symptoms. And they might come to me for that reason because they've tried a diet, which is, you know, held as, as being the best you know, for all kinds of conditions and it cures everything. And it's like, well, they're kind of disgruntled because it hasn't worked for them. And so my perspective is, is kind of looking at the underlying drivers and saying, well, okay, what's the reason for this? And what was the state of health before going on the diet? If the health was relatively okay, then moving on to a carnivorous diet, you're likely just going to see, you know, positive benefits. However, if you're in a state of systemic nutritional deficiencies, you're not absorbing what, you, what you're meant to absorb from food. What you end up seeing is that you can move to a carnivorous diet. There might be some minor benefits, but actually someone still can't obtain the, the, the full benefits of the diet. And in that kind of situation, it can be the result of a chronic B1 deficiency, which I think many people are experienced, especially if they've come from a diet which is, um, uh, which is uh, based on Western standards, which many people do. They are on a standard Western processed diet and then they decide, okay, I want to make a major change. I want to go on a carnival diet and fix everything. And in fact, like they've got these long-term- That's what my mom did, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> she had severe constipation and she said, no, I can't do this. Right. She had okay. severe side effects. Right. She was even moder moderately healthy, not like proper, you know, fast food and, all that, and processed food, but she was eating all the carbs, the grains, dairy sugars and all that kind of thing and she went carnival you know next day oh terrible terrible yeah and i mean sometimes that could just be a temporary adaptation right it can be like the gut needs some time to kind of adapt but what i would say is is that you know for some people it's it, it doesn't it doesn't adapt and they don't they don't see the improvements they're meant to see um and 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 kind of you know, not only is it this like nutritionally bereft diet, this empty diet, high calorie malnutrition, it's also if someone has like a chronic inflammatory condition, we have to understand or a condition which features, you know, systemic oxidative stress. What we have to understand is that the, the system has a much higher re requirement for dietary antioxidants or for anti it, it antioxidant system, okay? So it needs to counteract the damage that's being caused by some kind of toxin. Someone has like heavy metal poisoning, it means that their, their endogenous protection against that like glutathione is going to be much lower than the average person. What this means is, is that their requirement for glutathione is also much higher or there's a much higher turnover. The same thing applies to, to the B vitamins. So for instance, if someone has 
uh, chronic inflammation in a tissue, well, that depletes the B vitamins because it requires a higher turnover of energy, a higher turnover of resources to repair damaged tissue, hence higher nutritional demand. Now, ordinarily, if someone was in a natural environment, you could likely get this from food. However, because we're in an environment which is basically out to get us, you know, there's this high stress, but there's also these toxins that we're... uh, Every single one of us has stored in our body heavy metals, you know, um, lipid-soluble toxins, which are stored in our fat cells. All of these things are causing consistent damage. And so my point is that, you know, sometimes the amount that you get from food is not sufficient to address what someone's body burden. And so in some cases, at least it is necessary to go in with targeted, very targeted, specific supplementation to provide at least a temporary support for some people to bring their levels up, to provide extra protection against what they've been dealing with long-term and to kind of uh, allow the body to reestablish a new baseline. And that's, that's what I found to be most effective. And so something like a carnivorous diet, it's great nutritionally, but I personally find that if you replete or if you give high doses, particularly of B1, but also some of the other nutrients, um, then it really helps lift someone out of this metabolic state of stress. You know, it's like they're stuck in this rut. They can't move forward. And so actually it's bringing someone out of this and allowing them to establish this new baseline by which they can start absorbing what they're eating from food. They're benefiting from the anti-inflammatory effects and they're benefiting kind of from like the systemic uh, improvement in nutritional status. Uh, I've kind of forgotten what the second half of your question was. Uh, Testing. Oh, yes. Testing. What can people do? Like what tests, like simple tests? How would you know if you have a deficiency apart from, because a lot of people are fatigued. A lot of people have brain fog. Yeah, indeed. Okay. So one thing I would say is that I think this is one of the reasons why thiamine has, uh, has been under acknowledged. There's most tests, blood tests, uh, most nutritional tests, you have pretty established ways of measuring them. Now there's, there's pros and cons of, of every test. For instance, serum B12 can be very high, whereas someone's functional marker, so how they're actually using it in the cell, methylmalonic acid can be very low. So sometimes like what looks good in a blood test can actually like not be very good when you dig a little bit deeper. However, for vitamin B1, it's even a little bit more complicated because uh, the blood tests that are usually run only reflect recent intake. They don't necessarily tell you about how much the cell is using it. So there is a functional test and that's called erythrocyte transketolase or red blood cell transketolase. That's measuring how much an enzyme is working. It tells you basically whether you can get thiamine into the cell and whether it can actually be used. Okay. However, it's only looking at red blood cell levels. Like it's not looking at what is occurring in other areas of the body. And this is where it gets very interesting. And this is probably uh, something that I find the most interesting about vitamin B1 or uh, uh, the, its therapeutic properties. And this actually relates to what, what you were asking before about the dementia and other chronic conditions. So there's actually a, a collection of research which suggests that thiamine is not only uh, kind of like a, 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 a good way to describe thiamine is as an anti-stress molecule. 
Okay. That's how some researchers have actually looked. And this is not just in human beings. This is in the plant kingdom. This is in other, other microorganisms is that when a cell is, is exposed to some kind of stressor, this can be, for instance, a lack of oxygen. If, if you, if you get hypoxia, this triggers a stress response in the cell. If there's a toxin, this triggers a stress response in the cell. If there's something which blocks the body's ability to make energy, this also triggers a stress response. Now, you know, one of the first things that a cell will do, and this tells you how important B1 is, one of the first things a cell will do when it's under stress is it rapidly increases these transport proteins called thiamine transporters. So it basically sucks up thiamine from the environment. from the local environment. And one of the reasons for this is, is because thiamine is then used to counteract that stress. And this isn't just like uh, any specific form of stress. This is stress basically across the board, inflammatory, oxidative stress, poor energy metabolism. Ultimately, the cell is going to rapidly increase its uptake of thiamine. And so this is where it gets interesting because we have conditions for instance, in the central nervous system or in the heart, I'll give you a few examples. Parkinson's disease, okay? That's traditionally thought of as an incurable condition that you can't manage. In fact, they use levodopa and they use some other things, but really in terms of its ability, it's considered progressive. There's nothing you can do to stop the progression of that disease. That's Mm -hmm. conventional medical thinking. And it relates to the brain's inability or basically there's areas, cells of the brain called the substantia nigra, and they're responsible for, for making dopamine, okay? Now, they're in, in Parkinson's, what they found is that there's toxins which cause uh, irreparable or irreversible damage to the cells in the substantia nigra. And that means that someone's body can no longer make dopamine or someone's brain can no longer make dopamine. And therefore, that is one of the symptoms. That's one of the things that drives Parkinsonism. In fact, many is, you know, eventually someone's going to die because of this. Now, levodopa, again, that's a thing which kind of replaces dopamine and it can help temporarily, but there's nothing which can stop the progression. Well, it turns out what they found is that those toxins disrupt key, key enzymes in how the substantia nigra makes energy. And the mechanism of damage is a, um, is, a, is a lack of energy which causes necrosis of the cells. Mm. So in other words, if you can maintain energy production in those areas of the brain, you can at least preserve the function of those cells. Okay? okay. So the enzymes which it blocks are thiamine-dependent enzymes. So they found that the cells, those cells, the substantia nigra cells, are essentially, they become functionally thiamine deficient, deficient in thiamine, just in those regions of the brain, not elsewhere, okay? Mm. So someone can have normal blood levels systemically, they have normal levels in the body, but you have regional specific deficiencies caused by toxins. Now, there was a guy called uh, Dr. Neurologist, Dr. Conta, uh, Antonio Costantini, he started using mega doses of B1. Now, what he achieved in some of his neurological patients, he tested it on thousands, okay? They achieved symptomatic remission using thiamine, and that that remained, so their condition did not 
did not progress. It didn't get worse. And this continues to this day. So there's actually a community of thousands of people online. And I've actually recently interviewed someone called Daphne Bryan, who, uh, who wrote a book on Parkinson's uh, B1 therapy. She's used it successfully. She's had Parkinson's for, I believe it was seven years. She was told that it was going to decline. And actually she's been using vitamin B1 to manage that. And she's not seen any decline in function. Uh, her neurologists are basically wild and they're saying, well, I don't know what you're doing, but you need to continue doing it. Now there's thousands of people who are doing this. And the way that this is working is by counteracting the effect of those toxins is exerting this anti anti-stress effect in those regions of the brain. Now they found a similar thing in Huntington, Huntington's disease, and they found something similar in Alzheimer's dementia as well. So in wow. Alzheimer's dementia, they lose the ability one over there's, there's a loss of cholinergic activity in the brain. That's one of the things that disrupts um, the brains or disrupts memory. Okay. What they found is using high doses of benfotiamine can help Alzheimer's patients or dementia patients um, improve their, their memory and it actually slows down the progression. There's, there's other studies. Gary Gibson is, is actually doing a, a large-scale clinical trial using high doses at the moment. There's a lot of promise. They found that there's a functional deficiency, a regional deficiency in parts of the brain, but it's not systemic, okay? okay. Here's the thing. Like, you can be deficient in one organ, but not deficient in another organ. And this is one of the reasons why testing is kind of useless, that's it's a long way of describing testing is pretty useless. And the reason for that is, is because you might show up as normal levels, but you might benefit greatly. Same occurs in fibromyalgia. I'm actually almost finished writing a cha chapter on chronic pain and fibromyalgia. Mm. Costantini did another case study um, looking at high doses of thiamine for fibromyalgia. Now they found that when they used thousands of milligrams, so like 2,500 milligrams, 2,000 milligrams, uh, they found that Basically, you would um, uh, the, the the patient saw up to eighty percent improvement in energy and fatigue, and the way in which they're saying this happens is likely you have a functional deficiency that's not being picked up on tests. Mm -hmm. So, what I would say is the best way for someone to test for this, if they have any of these kinds of symptoms, is through trying thiamine. That's that's basically the only way to do it is by testing your response to supplementation. If you see an improvement then is to continue taking it. Now, so how the many milligrams and where should they buy it from? What quality? Because I know that you sell a supplement. Yeah, I mean, it's like it sounds it sounds uh, kind of convenient no, that I'm saying the only way. But it's quality, isn't it? Like the, it's quality supplements, knowing how much to take. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, the, 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 the interesting thing with thiamine, and it, this is really based on Dr. Derek Lonsdale's decades of, of experience. You know, he would say, Ultimately, if you have someone who's presenting with these symptoms, and it could be a wide variety of conditions, since thiamine is basically non-toxic, it doesn't have any toxic effect in the human body, even at massive doses, then really the best way to do it is to test it. And so that's why I started uh, as in a trial and error. That's why I started recommending this approach. And I'll be honest, I found people who have tested completely normal in terms of blood tests and even the functional levels, and yet they've responded marvelously to high doses of thiamine supplementation. So the way that you're doing this is basically you want to start out at a very low dose. And the reason for this is, is because some people experience what's called the paradoxical reaction or the paradoxical effect. What this basically means is that 
if someone needs it, oftentimes they get worse before they get better. And this means that their symptoms, which are originally caused by the low thiamine, can actually get worse. Okay. Right. So if someone has brain fog, it can mean that they get brain fog, which is amplified significantly. Okay. If someone has acid reflux, it means that their acid reflux can get a lot worse. Alternatively, if they've got uh, too much acid, then it means that they can have periods where they have low stomach acid. Okay. If they have diarrhea, it can mean that they go through periods of constipation. Or if they have constipation, it means that they can go through periods of diarrhea. Okay. If they, if they have fatigue, it means that that can get worse as well. So this paradoxical effect can last anywhere from one week to one month. And generally the way in which people manage it is by starting very low. Okay. And the way that you do it, well, generally, if you're looking at like the typical kind of therapeutic dose, it can be in the realm of anywhere from 100 milligrams to 1000 milligrams. Okay. Going to depend on the form as well. Because if you use ordinary thiamine HCL or thiamine mononitrate, which are thiamine salts, their absorbability and utilization by the cell is not very good. Mm -hmm. So what that means is generally the dose required is much higher. On the other hand, to bypass the problem, there's various kind of like researchers over the decades who've studied what are called thiamine derivatives or more bioavailable forms of thiamine, which basically uh, bypass the body's kind of inability to absorb much of it and get much higher amounts into the cell. Okay. So these are the ones I tend to use clinically. I find that they're much better. Uh, There is one which is very effective at getting into the brain. And this is quite important because many other forms of thiamine, uh, they can saturate the body systemically, but because the brain is so selective in terms of what it absorbs, then what you're going to find is that you can't get much into the brain. Now, benfotiamine can, sorbitiamine can. TTFD, I believe, is the best at this. And this is the one, uh, it's abbreviated thiamine tetrahydrofurfal disulfite. Basically, what the derivatives are is a thiamine molecule, which is bound with some other kind of molecule, which gives it certain properties. So they have beneficial effects in terms of antioxidant function or whatever. But basically, so if you're using a derivative, then you start at a lower dose, maybe 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams, gradually building it up over time. If you're starting with thiamine hydrochloride or thiamine mononitrite, you you might start at 100 milligrams and you might gradually work up by 100 milligrams every couple of days. Now, something to consider is that it kind of works in this stepwise fashion. So for instance, what you notice is that when someone starts on thiamine, they might see immediate positive effects, which is excellent. That means they can continue going up on the dose. The problem is, is if they experience negative effects, the key is to stay at that current dose until those negative effects or the symptoms return back to baseline. Then they work up. Only then do they increase the dose. Okay. Okay. Now they gradually keep doing that. Every time they increase the dose, they'll generally notice that things get worse. But as they remain at that dose, things return to baseline again. And as, as you gradually do that, it generally improves this situation. However, what I would also emphasize is that as you start to take B1, then you're increasing your requirement for the other B vitamins across the board. So to counteract that or to kind of um, to put the right safety measures in place, what you want to ordinarily be doing is taking a good quality B complex behind that. And at the same time, uh, what we often find is since magnesium is necessary for the um, for the activation and for the utilization of B1, 
many of the enzymes also share a cofactor. So what I would say is, is that it's very important to take magnesium alongside thiamine. Uh, in fact, there's many people who take thiamine and they notice uh, like negative effects, which can be counteracted with 300 to 400 milligrams of magnesium in any form. Now, again, like oh, okay. uh, there's not many people who, who really kind of talk about, discuss other than Derek Lonsdale and Chandler Mars, discuss the intricacies in terms of how to use thiamine in mega doses. I've kind of worked out and laid out all of the nutritional interactions or, or most of them that I could actually find. So when you take thiamine, it has specific effects on the minerals and the vitamins. It can increase the requirement. And so personally, what I found is that a lot of the negative paradoxical effects can actually be counteracted by taking nutrients in the in the kind of right doses so you know the ethos of our company is basically based around thiamine using thiamine in mega doses uh, we do have two other products which have recently come out um which are basically uh they, they provide magnesium a little bit of potassium some molybdenum manganese selenium and then a b complex which is kind of designed to to support the action of, of thiamine uh in the right doses and things however that said like any kind of B complex is going to be sufficient. And as long as someone's getting magnesium, that's usually going to be sufficient. That could be any brand as well. Uh, it doesn't have to be my company, it's, you know, any brand they can find. Alternatively, sometimes people who get negative reactions, they can require extra amounts of molybdenum or potassium or even manganese. Now, uh, it can be pretty intricate, especially when you're dealing with like chronic disease. Uh, I, I actually have like a guide that can be found on my website, which is like how to supplement, uh, what, what symptoms might be related to other increased nutritional demands and stuff. So, you know, without getting into too much detail, it can be, uh, it's not necessarily straightforward when you're trying high doses of thiamine, mm -hmm. but I, I mean, it's not, it's not like the, the be all or fix all for but everyone you said either. It's non-toxic as well. So then it's true. We could just, yeah, it's non-toxic. Try it. Yeah, I mean that's what a lot of people do, and 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 again, it's 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 one of those things. It's like uh, it's like some people try it, they don't notice any benefit. It's like, well, that's fair enough, you know. Thymine wasn't your your thing. What I would say, however, is that some people try it and they don't see benefit because their dose wasn't high enough. Okay. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've had some people come to me who say, oh, you know, I'm in three caps of uh, Thymax 300 milligrams of TTFD. I've not seen any improvement in my gut problems. What's going on? And then I get an email back, you know, a couple of days later and they say, oh my God, you know, I took 500 milligrams and actually all of my gut symptoms disappeared. So I needed this amount to achieve this effect. So what I would say is, is like any form that someone uses, um, it's good to kind of go towards the higher, higher amounts. And that would be kind of for the thiamine hydrochloride, it could be up to like three grams, which is a very high amount for TTFD. It could be, you know, in the realm of 500 or to kind of a thousand milligrams, although that's very high. And then benfotiamine, it, it usually in the range between 300 and like 2,100 milligrams. And where can people find you? I have a YouTube channel. It's called EO Nutrition. But I also, uh, yeah, I, I talk a lot about thiamine. If people are interested in this, you know, I've got information on kind of why uh, the factors that can lead to an underlying deficiency, why I think it's so overlooked, how that can present, you know, in terms of different conditions. So the heart, the gut 
the um the 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 brain the kind of ways that that might look in someone who's full-blown deficient or someone who just has a mild subclinical deficiency and i also talk about some case studies you know people who've come to me on carnival diets who've tried different things and then we use different types of supplementation you know vitamin c for instance which i find can be remarkably effective as a therapeutic agent when taking as a supplement especially on a carnival diet for certain things so I, I try to kind of hack the carnival diet for different people who don't see the benefits in that. So that's my YouTube channel. And at the same time, uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram. I don't really use those things. Uh, and I do have a website, which is called EO Nutrition. 